Hello, welcome to Desert Island Books, a podcast about reading. I'm your host and resident librarian, Natalie Mason, from the Melbourne Library Service. Joining me is a special guest who will share their top three all-time favourite books. Sophie Cunningham is the author of four books, including the acclaimed Melbourne, which is one of my favourites, Geography, Bird and Warning, the story of Cyclone Tracy. Her fifth book, City of Trees, Essays on Life, Death and the Need for a Forest, has just been published by text. Sophie was a founding board member of the Stella Prize, a prize for Australian women's writing, is a former editor of Mianjin, and the former chair of the Literature Board of the Australia Council. She's currently an adjunct professor in the non-fiction lab at RMIT University. Welcome to your desert island, Sophie. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Are you happy here on your island? Um, I am. It's, it's, it's quite a little island. But yes, no, it's very nice. I was actually just listening to my biog and thinking there were so many formers in there. So what are you doing now? <laughs> That's what I realised. Beg to the question. I just, um, um, I have been just. I'm, I'm writing books full time at the moment. Give or take. Marvelous. A bit of teaching and that kind of thing. Is that keeping you happy? Obviously occupied, but happy. I wouldn't say happy, but. But because um, that's not my natural inclination. Oh, unhappy? Uh, no, no. But I like doing it. I yeah. get a lot. I get. I feel very kind of. I get. I get unhappy because I'm worried I'm not doing it well enough. But I wouldn't rather. There's nothing else I would rather do. So I feel I suppose like that is happiness. I feel like everybody feels nervous that they're not doing a good enough job. So how do we learn to? Shake that off. That's a different podcast, I feel. Yes, maybe. it is. Right. Okay, we'll just we'll talk about people who we think pulled it off today. Okay, let's <laughs> do that then. Well done, Sophie. Well done. Um, could you please reveal, in that case, the title and author of book one? Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. <sighs> Thank you for making me reread this book. I am thrilled to discuss it with you today. Where would you like to start? Would you like to start with how... And why it made your top three? It's um, before I launch into that. I am going to do the an annoying rave, which I've done when I've been asked versions of what books I like the most, and that is that it's a bit of a movable feast for me, and not so much with this book, but with the other ones I'm going to talk about. They're my current loves. This one is a sort of a more eternal love. But even I have to say on rereading it, because um, I've lost count of how many times I have read it, but um, on rereading it in preparation for today, some things that didn't sit comfortably with me were more obvious to me in, in, and that I hadn't really thought about it at the time. So, I, I mean, it's a book that you... I think books track where you are in your life. So, which is by way of saying, I first read it as a teenager and I was extremely interested in falling in love, but I was Mm. also a young feminist. And so this book kind of captured that kind of weird teenage intense sort of romanticism, but political sensibility. And, And to have that, and also Charlotte Bronte herself was such a kind of interesting figure and I became really fascinated by by her as well uh, I o- almost liked as much Wuthering Heights yeah um, that was a badly constructed sentence sorry <laughs> um, but I went off that that was a little bit too it's worth dying for the perfect person Mm. That you know, I, I went off that over the years, but this one has stayed with me. Nonetheless, when I was rereading it, Rochester can be pretty horrible to Jane sometimes. 
I just feel that he's the definition of mansplaining. He and he sort of yes, it, it he he's incredibly masculine. I mean, I do kind of like that energy about it. That's it's unselfconscious about saying he is a man. He has a heavy brow. I am aroused to be in his presence. You know, yeah. Every he he bristles with energy. So there's something. When I say shameless, I think she doesn't realise kind of how erotic in a way it is because it's really quite – the language is very polite but the emotions are not polite at all. No, they're not. They're desperate in some way. um, Jane Eyre's always always desperate to see Rochester. She doesn't know the next time she's going to see him. Will he come down to the library or the drawing room? Will he show up for tea? And then he disappears and she so desperately longs for him. Um, But I do find those conversations – particularly some of their early conversations, where Rochester is surprised that Jane is smart. I think that really stung me on a re- on many, well, on this particular reread to prepare for today, that he was so shocked that a woman could be so smart and his intellect- intellectual equal and that that's what he wanted in a partner because he was is- so destined to be with... Um, with the frivolous young lady from up the road. Miss Ingram. Oh, Miss Blanche. Blanche Ingram. How dare I forget her name. But it's actually one of the, I suppose, the wonderful thing about him is that he's open to acknowledging that that he's so much happier talking to someone who is his equal rather than being defensive about it. So in a way, one could argue that even today one might (laughs) might have a, not just doesn't have to be a male partner, but just to find a partner who actually embraces someone and all their... Prickliness and directness is is a kind of a bit of a gift, and the fact that he was open to that, he, that is still romantic. The things that I found um, romantic to my modern um, eye or ear, but the things I found, the way he teased her, the kind of cruelty, like like there's some routine where he's pretending he's going to marry Miss Ingram, basically. That's right. And then she says, "For a fortnight we carried on." So this this joke, inverted commas, went on for. For two weeks, torturing I would Jane have died. Mm. Well, no, there was nothing else going on. No so. Facebook to complain. To that's me. exactly what. That's <laughs> what I meant. There was nothing else going on. You just had that one thought to occupy like, you for I'm a getting, fortnight. No, no, you know, no one to message and say I'm getting really mixed messages. Yeah, decode this for me. But then, by the end of the book, Rochester is so insecure that he could be lovable. Yes, but another thing I really love about this book, and I get back in a way to the idea, but that sort of unselfconsciousness I talked about, is that it's pre-Freudian, so the kind of female rage and anger is quite literally a woman locked in the attic, who is his former wife, who is he's inverted commas caring for, but she's basically insane or not basically, is insane, is kind of haunting them. Mm. And then, spoiler, can I do a spoiler? Yes. <laughs> For those, if someone hasn't Jane read Eyre. Jane Eyre by now, <laughs> I'm really not going to be too sympathetic. Um, doesn't he get blinded by the, at the end? He does, by the terrible so, fire that his insane wife. Yes, so he gets kind of smote or smited or something, smit. <laughs> one, one of his eyes comes good by the end of the book, though. That's right, and you can see her plain plain beauty or whatever. I can't quite remember the wording but um, her plainness is um, because I actually was trying to um, I knew that one of you wanted to ask if there was particular ideas or whatever that or lines that I loved 
Adeline, there is a line I love about um, when she talks about being ordinary and plain. And then I just, but I searched my ebook. And I realise she actually says the plane about twice on every page. Yeah, she does. Or it's referred to by other people around her. Yeah. Which and I was a bit shocked by that. I thought there was this one dramatic line about, you know, I might be little and ordinary and plain. That's not quite right. But something like that. But no, it's just this constant yeah. refrain. But there is that one wonderful part early on in their um, meeting when Rochester asks, do you think I'm handsome? She very quickly replies no because she doesn't know what to say when she thinks yes is probably a little bit forward because they've only just met. And so she says no and it becomes this huge big deal that she's not totally into him at but the it, very beginning. But, I mean, he's not really handsome as described on the page. No. I know that in, in, in the television, various television series and movies he is, um, is handsome. I actually... I read this book, I used this book a lot in the writing of Geography, which is my first novel, and was a inverted romance. It was sort of a romance with a, where you don't want the woman to get the man, in, in a sense. So the male character, as I first um, uh, wrote him, Michael, in, in the book, was um, really quite ugly. And I know that when I was talking about there was going to possibly be a film and indeed, I think even in the book, there was a, quite a lot of pressure to make him slightly less ugly. Mm. And part of the point, in a way, was that, you know, when you're, when you're madly in love, you find someone beautiful. Yes. And so no, no matter what they look like. And so I kind of wanted to have a real dissonance between how he might appear to others and, and how she saw him. But people aren't very comfortable in such a visual age these yeah. days as yes. well. So... I did see one of the Janies a few years ago, and he's like he was totally hot. The guy who played Rochester, which is not the, doesn't work. Timothy Dalton does a blue-eyed version from the nineties. Yeah. Do you reckon that was the nineties? Yes, I think that might be a, one of the BBC adaptations. Anyhow, yes, Rochester hot, and so that kind hot of hot or not, it kind of changes quiz. things because in a way, of there's course. something about him being blind even if it's temporary, temporary, in a way, looks don't count. That sounds kind of incredibly trite when I say it. No, but I think, but that I that's, think that's a really profound part of the book. That, that goes that, all the way through the book because even Jane Eyre's cousin, Sijin. I just think St John, that's how it's spelled. Well, it's spelled St John, let's go for it, but no space. So I like to say Sijin because it's a bit silly. Sinjin. It's funny to say. Go I, for it. I've never, Sinjin. I've never understood why it's not St John. Anyway, that's, again, another podcast, a boring one. Well, no, no, I, I, I could I'm really... into that. The, the pronunciation of Sidgen with Natalie and Sophie. Okay, <laughs> we'll do that next. Um, but, yes, her cousin is not terribly attractive either. And I think, you know, in Jane being plain or being described repeatedly, repeatedly as being plain, I think um, in some ways detracts from the emotion that's going on because it's all about how attracted they are to each other and yet... They're so ugly. In, but in a way, I think it, I think it's also about class because one of the reasons she's little and plain is because she can't have her hair done and afford fancy clothes because I assume that, as indeed, is that Charlotte Bronte on, the, on the cover on the that cover. you have put? Very I mean, demure. She, I assume that she thought of herself as plain. I would, yes. A lot of the fancy women, even Miss Oliver, the school teacher that um, Sidgen is in love with, has um, has great curls. And I think you're right about 
being being able to be dressed up and have a lady's maid who takes care of your hair, makeup and jewelry, and and you kind of get you know. Whereas Jane takes care of her own business. She's her own independent. Woman. So in a way, I think it's a it's code for class because she's not plain. Hmm. I mean, she's just sort of she's an average looking woman, and, and, and as missing from probably would would have be if she didn't hmm. didn't have her hair curled. Yeah. Um, here's a curveball. Do you think plain Jane that phrase comes from Jane Eyre and Jane being described as plain? Yes, I just totally. Well, wondered. I mean, it, it seems. And now, now I want to Google it and see if you're right. Yeah, it does. It does seem like a good call. Sometimes I'm right, or but not always. the saying existed, and Prior, that's why she, and that's called why she was Jane. called Jane. Well, you know what? We're safe on both counts. We're yeah. we're right, no matter which way you dice it. Um, this I have to. One last thing I wanted to say, unless you have more to say, I've probably got a lot to say. Mm. But the one last thing I wanted to say was: this is I rarely reread. I find it a sort of a waste of time to go backwards because there's so many books yeah. I haven't read. But Curling Up with Jane Eyre this weekend and rereading it was one of the greatest pleasures of my life and it's making me want to go back and revisit Wuthering Heights and, the, and revisit Emma and maybe even read Shirley, the first book that Charlotte... I have read them all but I must admit one. some of them did. Some of them have that kind of great heterosexual passion without quite the the narrative kind of dent complexity or something so they're not quite as... As gripping, um, I did. There is a line in this um, which I realised that um, one of my other authors I'm going to mention today uses uh, versions of, and I used in in geography, and I think you know probably eighty five percent of novelists have used, and that is that sort of direct address of reader I married him. Mm. It is a, it is a great phrase, and it's quite a modern. It, that that there's a directness. It's not not to have a plain little woman say suddenly sort of step out of the narrative direct um direct that statement to her her reader and it be that kind of like you know i got him <laughs> yeah. snaps it's, he's yeah. mine <laughs> it's kind of wonderful and grammatically it's i haven't got the time here to sort of analyze like there's something quite powerful about it grammatically as well and a lot of writers use it it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing to be addressed as a reader because yeah. we're so hidden you know behind the you know we we're onlookers essentially we're kind of along for the ride when we read and we escape with the story but we're very rarely directly addressed and she's not asking us questions she's confiding in us in a way that kind of draws you further into the story That's right and it's also confident because it's like she knows you've kept reading Yes well, it's the beginning of the last chapter. Beautiful. And also a caption of, like, many brides' yeah. Instagram photos. So, do you, reader I married him lives on. Oh, Thank that, you, Charlotte. That's lovely. Isn't it gorgeous? <laughs> um, without further ado, shall we move to book number two? Sophie, could you please reveal the title and author of book two? The Argonauts, Maggie Nelson. <sighs> Thank you for choosing this. Please explain. Well, it's possibly related to the fact that Rita, I married her. So uh, Jane does speak to a kind of heterosexual past, and I'm, I don't, I'm, I don't mean that flippantly. I mean quite seriously. I just assumed that I would enact a particular narrative, romantic narrative in my life. Never, cr- and and that was all I th- sort of 
thought about it, didn't consider options. And then, you know, my life happened and I've been, I'm now married to a woman and I, we've been together for 17 years. So at some point I abandoned the narrative, which I admire so much in, 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 the, um, in Charlotte Bronte's writing. And Maggie Nelson is a fantastic person to read if you want to interrogate not just queerness, but that is one of the, she interrogates everything, and that's what yeah. actually that's really why I've picked her. Um, she interrogates form, and um, in terms of creative nonfiction and long form writing, I love the way the book reads, regardless of the content, and I love how it's both personal but impersonal, uh, um, and. It reminded me, I mean, I probably had as passionate a response to books that I... I did a lot of feminist theory uh, at university in the mid-'80s, so I, I, I did Lacan and Spivak and Irigaray and, you know, other people whose names have eluded me, and there was just a sense of a whole world opening up, a world that was complex and challenged you and actually made sense of things that hadn't quite, didn't seem, you just sort of took on face value but they niggled like something wasn't right. Yeah. And Maggie is the first writer I've read in recent years that had that kind of impact on me. And intellectually the, the um, 80s were, were huge for me because that's when I was at university and really set up a lot of my thinking. And, and this was a bit like a kind of coming home for me is, is, is uh, to read a younger writer who was sort of address, uh, looking at a lot of um, gender theorists, uh, looking at very contemporary theory, but grappling with um, really complex issues. So, I mean, for those who've, who are listening who haven't read the book, Ma Maggie is a... I don't even, she wouldn't identify as a lesbian. She's had, she's a bisexual woman, to use a kind of language that she would not use, um, who is interested in S&M. At the same time, she has fallen in love with a woman who has transitioned to a man called Harry, who is apparently quite a well-known artist. I, I don't know his work. And she, he is on hormone treatment, so he's on tea and she's on hormone treatment because she's trying to get pregnant yep. so there are these two bodies in transition that have found each other and they enjoy perversity and so she talks a lot about perverse motherhoods um, but also wanting to be quite conventional in, in many ways and 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 she asks questions around it. and this this actually uh, uh, spoke to me quite you know quite personally do you have to be radical to be queer? Like yeah. <laughs> you just you really yes. you just go around living your life. You're not really right. Thinking, it's not Rah. a political statement to be yourself. And there are some moments where one might be quite radical, and there's some where people can be deeply conservative, and which is a form of transition. So she's about constant change and constant transition, and that's just in the text. So. I'm assuming that every time I read it, I would have a different response to it. I've read it three times. But the, um, she says, there's something truly strange about living in a historical moment in which the conservative anxiety and despair about queers bringing down civilization and its institutions, marriage most noticeably, is met by the anxiety and despair so many queers feel about the failure or incapacity of queerness to bring down civilization and its <laughs> institutions. And look, she, she goes on. She always She's does. She's so brilliant. And I saw her speaking 
in uh, at a conference in Arizona when I was living in the States. The book came out when I was in the States and she seemed terrific but I hadn't read the book. But I was, and she talked a lot about formal considerations about how she quotes and how she draws another theorists and, and incorporates them in a very kind of almost casual way into her into her writing. So that's what made me want to kind of pick up the book. And I didn't actually realise it was, um, it would have, you know, a really interesting discussion about... There is a real examination of what it means to be a mother as a straight woman, as a queer woman, and what the differences are and if there are differences. Um, and it's a real interrogation. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a real inter- interrogation also of the relationship between mother and child. Um, and she does talk about how sometimes that can border on the erotic or sexual. Yes. And, and not, that, she's not a... Fr- I mean, that's a kooky thing to she's say. A fearless, she's a fearless writer about everything, but um, with... with it was just actually thinking that I've had friends who have had babies and they, they do say, I really love breastfeeding, but they would never talk about that publicly. Yeah. And it is a kind of, it's a, an erotic experience, but I mean, I think the word erotic is kind of very loaded. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, think we could that, use different words, but I mean, Maggie certainly is not shy of using that word, but. But intimacy, I think, is erotic. I, I mean, you yes, can have, you yes, can, you could yes. meet a str- I would think it erotic if I went to a party and ended up with a stranger just laughing and laughing and laughing because they said something that I thought was hilarious and we both found each other funny and we laughed together for 10 minutes. That would feel kind of... That is an intimate, like a an kind Im- of immediate physical kind of, yeah. kind of effect, you know. So, I mean, I do think the word... I use the... Think of the word as quite a broad word, but I realise that that's not... I mean, partly if you have pets and you kind of, you know... you. You cuddle them a lot, Ooh. and that's very kind of. I'm into my cats in a very special way. In that case, <laughs> well, me ah, too. Aren't we all? <laughs> yes, aren't we all? Yes, a special podcast for ladies who like their cats a lot. Well, that's that's the first one we should record. <laughs> Second one will be the Sijin pronunciation, but the first one will be ladies who love their cats. Um, I wanted to say you touched on earlier about how Maggie draws on so many different theorists and writers and pieces of research. Um, And as someone who is uh, not such an academic reader, I don't think of myself as um, particularly um, able to cope with really highfalutin concepts. Maggie has made it so easy for me. Um, to kind and, and I've never studied gender theory, so she's really made it very easy for me to kind of pick up some theories. And then I loved, I loved how she debunked a whole bunch of them. She's sort of like, well, this happened to me in my personal experience of motherhood, and this philosopher says this, but now nah, that couldn't be true because that's not my experience. But this guy said that, and then that's kind of what this experience is. And the other thing you mentioned was the way that it's written. Um, it has all of the footnotes in the margins and it's not a opposite obs- like this giant sort of Harvard reference that you've got to trawl through. It's just these sort of side notes as you're reading and it, for me it made it so much more understandable. I didn't feel like I had to Google every second name. I felt like she was giving it to well, me. Well, there's an intimacy in the text. I mean, I, f- I feel like she's really thought a lot about intimacy because it reads very intimately. Yeah. But it's, it's a very intellectual construction at the same time, even though it wouldn't always feel like that. Yeah. I don't um, feel like she's leaving me behind, even though I'm not 
um, well-read in this area before I had read and this And I book. hadn't been reading in that area for 20 years or something. So She just takes you straight with her. It was not, not a problem at all. It's almost like a kitchen table conversation as opposed to an academic piece of writing. Would and you she, agree? Yes. And she also, one of the things, when people get obsessed with rules and particular particularly when there are so many um, understandable politics around um, gender and being queer and transitioning. And she managed to navigate that incredibly kind of complex territory. It's a bit like she's riding the rapids Mm. and she just kind of just kicks off a boulder and just kind of keeps moving and says, I'm going to get things wrong, my life might be wrong, but this is my life. You just have to kind of live it in the best. You have to be honest with yourself and with others. You have to live life in good faith. There's a kind of interrogative energy at the same time as not pretending to be someone she's not. She's not trying to to be too cool for school or... Because I think... um, I think... the anxiety about getting any of these issues right is 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 always high, and it's even higher when when people aren't quite sure what right is, <laughs> you know, yes. what it means to get something right. So she's kind of entering in a debate while that debate isn't totally fluid. Um, but she's also she um, um, she does use that um, construction of suddenly addressing the reader. Yes, in, in they're the, going to read to me. She just says, you, reader, are alive today reading this because someone once adequately policed your mouth exploring. That doesn't mean the last two words don't make sense. Aren't actually <laughs> as rude as they sound, to be honest. So she's more, talking about language. Yeah. And one of the things I also love about this book, it, she really captures a kind of particular angst. Well, I would say a particular angst of mine, but it's probably an angst for most people, or most writers, that is words really feel inadequate about 90% of the time. And as a writer, you're thinking, well, I'm going to... My book, City of Trees, is partly about um, the, you know, extinction and environmental change. And it's a painful subject, but you don't want to kind of just become sentimental. And just trying to find the right language has just reminded me. And and I talk about my father's um, death of dementia and he loses language and those... Various experiences have made me think a lot about when are words adequate, when are they not? How do you deal with the fact that they are not adequate? How do you be precise and express yourself clearly with such with tools that are so inept, without just becoming um, as you, you academic, without becoming so precise and particular that. You, you're not going to be able to get a general reader. Yeah, that you've lost that feeling. Is there added pressure because you're committing them to paper and they will live on beyond uh, simply a conversation? Yes. <laughs> yeah, right, absolutely. Okay. Sorry, yeah. just to add that yes. pressure <laughs> right on top. Hey, Sophie. Um, yeah. I often think about that. I often think about emails for too long before I hit send. So mm. the idea of committing... Um, my interpretation of a theory or my interpretation of like writing a eulogy, just the idea of that just terrifies me. I don't know how I'm ever going to be able to adequately write how I feel in in that situation. And so um, greatly um, um, in admiration of writers who can commit things to paper and who do so in the way that Maggie does by saying, I don't know if I'm right. I just know that this was my experience of motherhood and this is what other people have said about it, but that doesn't always match what my experience has been. And that's why I really feel like she's just 
sitting, sitting me down and telling me her life with all of these kind of intellectual thoughts and you should read this you should read this theorist Natalie because it kind of relates to this thing that I'm experiencing and she actually helped me under some of because one of the few of the theorists say Judith Butler that she refers to I haven't read so I did a lot of reading of this um, related issues in the 80s but there's more recent thinkers that I hadn't read and she sort of has encouraged me to, to either go back to them or to not go back to them <laughs> um, in fact some of because we are historic, we're at such an interesting historical moment. So on the one hand, you have people interrogating sexuality and sexual identity. And part of that is allowing people to be sexual with people they wouldn't once have been, felt brave enough to be sexual with at the same time as there being a real interrogation of when is, is it appropriate to be sexual with anyone not in the workplace, for example, but just in, yes. um, how do you read signals? How do you get these things right? And to have the two conversations going on at the same time is really difficult. It's complex, yeah. And I'm assuming that uh, there, I mean, there's there's a there's a discussion going on what's going on in the press in New York Times about some eminent feminist critic. I don't think it was Jane Gallup, but maybe it is Jane Gallup, and the way she was treating one of her male students much younger. So it was a kind of reversal of the kind of um, older male academic kind of um, ab abusing the trust of his, his younger female students. And to some extent, I'm not saying that it justifies it, but she was saying this is me sort of enacting particular kind of assertiveness and confidence and as an older woman allowing my sexuality to still be a part of how I present to the world. And, you know, the students are quite rightly saying it's not our, like, not our, not our problem. We don't have to handle your sexuality, whatever your age or whatever. And it's so complicated. Yeah. And she's one of the few writers that I haven't got irritated with when I, when I read, because often you read people's responses to these complicated times and you think, oh, God, they've got it so wrong. Mm. Or, or I don't know, just simply don't agree. Yeah. Wrong or right. I don't know if I'm right. It's who could say. But, yeah, Maggie Nelson. Maggie Nelson. Have you read other works by her? Yes, I have read, is it The Red Book? Yes. Yeah, I've read The Red Book and I've read Blue. And The Red Book, I you um Why are they colours? yes. Are they, are they, I haven't read either of them. Are they distinctly Blue is named? about colour. Okay. And about the colour blue, which uh, someone who paints, as I do, blue is a slightly obsessive making colour. Truly. Tell us another podcast. Okay. That's it's kind of slightly one. hypnotic. You kind of just find yourself obsessing about types of blue and what blue captures and, or using the colour blue for things that aren't really blue. Anyway, so she, and, and the history of the dyes and chemicals that create blue and the word blue. What a fascinating topic yeah. for a, a gender theorist and a cultural critic to write about. So that was, one, I think, one of her early books. And the Red Book is an, about her Her aunt was murdered violently and, and sexually assaulted yes. before she was born. But How she lived... Horrific story. But the guy who did it ended up in court when she was a young adult, I think. So she's sort of trying to think about, trying to understand what happened to her aunt, understand the impact it had on her mother, trying not to be overly pervy, like because you can get really fascinated in other people's mm. grief 
and the way the media portrays sexual assault. I mean, her aunt fell into all those kind of media tropes. But at the same time, as being interested or developing a kind of sadomasochistic practice in your sexual life, sort of thinking about violence and what does violence mean. So I liked it a lot. It's not as it's not quite as amazing as the Argonauts, but it's because it's partly because it's got a straighter narrative and it's about yeah. something else. Yeah. But still, that real personal bravery in terms of saying, "How can I get so you know I'm getting upset about sexual violence when sometimes you know that's what I'm into." Into yeah, yeah, that's complex terrain. That is a that is a podcast I'm not hosting, but someone else <laughs> should do that one. Um, Time is zipping by. Shall we delve into your third book? Could you please reveal the title and author of book three? Book three is The Overstory by Richard Powers. If I have been articulate, I'm going to be less articulate about this book because this book I read very recently mm. and I just love it. I'm in love with it and it's the best. Yes. So I, I think that's all you need I, to say. I haven't really um, got... A lot of distance on it but I'll tell you some in terms of books representing phases of life so both the, the, um, there's a kind of romantic narrative that I've suggested in my first two books Jane Eyre and, and The Argonauts a personal romantic narrative whereas the third um, Richard Powell's book is about trees but you love trees and I'm in love with trees That's okay. so it's post-human it's sort it's of still it's, romantic, though. We talked about loving our cats. We can talk about loving trees. And it's a book which is sort of structured like a tree. I'll, so first of all, it, it reads like a series of short stories. And it took me a while to get into it. I was thinking, oh, this, this is a perfectly nice short story. This is a nice short story. Every short story had a tree in it. But it takes you a while to realise that they're going to coalesce in the trunk of the book oh. and then they kind of fracture and fragment again in the crown. It, it took me going back and looking at the contents page and seeing that it was called Roots Trunk Crown. I was like, oh, this is starting to... Because I had... At, at first mm. I was thinking, oh, I thought this was a novel, but these are short stories. And then I realised he's trying to kind of capture a particular structure, which isn't just relevant to trees. It happens, I think, in, in human encounters in general, that you kind of live disparate lives and then you come together for a key moment and then... You've changed each other's lives, or the tree has changed your life, or whatever. Is and it the same tree in every story? No, are different we all trees. over the world, or are we we're in all over. The, no, we're, I think they're we're in, in this, America, all in the same country. But one of the um, characters is working with digital trees. Like he's a man who is Ooh. extremely disabled, and he's a brilliant programmer. So he's sort of in the virtual world. And Richard Powers has oh, written wow. a lot about that. In the past, and I haven't read his other novels. Okay. This book was long-listed for the booker. Maybe it was the, short-listed for the booker. No, it was – oh, sorry, you're correct. It was short-listed. Um, I just say that because when I read this, I thought I was just being a weirdo, but I was, I was quite relieved <laughs> that um, – And but, but, but you mean being a weirdo by reading everything on the shortlist? Are you that kind no, of no. reader? Oh, no, no. No, it just made me – I thought the book is a slightly weird book. Oh, yes. And so it made me think, oh – other people have thought this weird book is amazing. Yes, but that's true. When when books that are a little that read a little differently are outside your comfort zone, if they're picked for a prize, makes you think, well, other people have liked this. I should read this. I should like this. And you but, force yourself, I guess. So while everyone's 
initial tree, imprinting on a tree is a different tree and it's in childhood. The tree that br- the trees that bring them all together are the giant sequoia. Was it giant sequoia or coastal redwood? I think it's giant sequoia. So I read the book last July, about a year ago, and then a few months later I went and saw the giant sequoia and it just made me... It's sort of hard to talk about how extraordinary those... I mean, they're thousands of years old. They're the biggest trees in the world. Well, the ones I went to see were in um, the Sierra. So they were about four hours north of LA, four hours south of... Between LA and San Francisco. It's a bit... I think it's probably a bit like seeing whales or things which are so other and enormous and... Well, there's longevity, which the whales don't have quite the same longevity, that you think about everything differently. You think about time differently. You think about the meaning of human existence differently. And that is very relevant to the novel because these people are trying to save a particular grove of trees. I mean, that's one part of the story. It's not the only story. In a time where trees are dying by the billions and most of these giant trees will be gone soon... This is a work of fiction, but how much it, of it, it is... A, but that, that is true. That I mean, about, that, yeah. that, that, that those things are true. Yeah. Um, and how... Do, and these humans are trying to work within... I think it was loosely based on a series of protests to try and save national parks in the 70s or 80s. Okay. But... Um, so people are trying to do within something within 10 years, but trees, if they think at all are more like 2,000, have, have a different lifespan. And so there's a sense of a tree consciousness that starts to move through the book. But it's not, it's very vague. And I suppose that's part of the point, that if trees do communicate, how do they express their feelings and how might you receive the tree's message? Is a tree saying, help me? Is a tree saying, it's cool, we'll sort it out? Are the trees even talking to us or are they just spending their time communicating with each other? Yes, all those kind of... And, and it's so it's it doesn't have a clear answer to those questions other than to let you know that a single li- human lifespan isn't enough to really... So people are in a panic because they, they're not going to save this particular grove of trees. But the vibe of the book, which I found very hopeful, was it's not just about what happens in your generation. It's yeah. about an ongoing effort. So it's about a shift in consciousness. It's not just about um, what you can do in any one short period of time. And I found that stopped me feeling hopeless. And what's the biggest threat to the tree? Trees? Um, to trees in general, a combination of... Well, I mean, in the book. On but the book. And on the that, trees, it's, it's development. And does that resonate with the biggest threat in in our lives, in our lifetime? Clearing, yes. Clearing. A combination okay. of clearing, but um, then there's lots of other little things. The biggest organism in the world is currently dying. It's called the quaking aspen, I think. It's about 162 acre of tree. Like <gasps> every every bit of it is this is a clone, so it's all a single specimen. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's in Utah and it is dying because, long story short, there are no longer predators to stop the deer and other li- little animals nibbling, From eating, shoots. eating the shoots. Right, so okay. it can't regenerate. Okay. Oh, so I there's, like the there's, idea of deer living, but I also like the idea of, this but, is but complex. You could, but you could have some deer living and not have... Once you take a predator out of the system, 
there's a huge impact on everything. So there are a lot of different reasons for why trees are going, but the particular redwoods, it's about development. Okay. And in the book, that's the same. That that's the same threat. Well, that's what our climate change is also. Um, I just bung that one in there as well. Yes, just pop it in. Um, but but you see, I mean, it is an issue if you can't because a two thousand year old tree has to be able to inverted commas have babies. So if there's nowhere mm. for the new trees to, to grow up to drop, yeah, then that, they... that's a problem. It's a huge problem. Um, are the birds okay? Just on an off no, topic. No, don't actually. Let's not if we. Okay. We want this to be hopeful. Books are great and, and reading them makes us feel better. And, and we should read... Talking about birds and, 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 and the future of the planet won't make us feel better. Well, we can read books like The Hidden... Is it The Hidden Lives of Trees? The Hidden Feelings of Trees? Hidden... Hidden oh. Lives. Yeah. Hidden Lives of Trees. Wonderful book. Absolutely yes. wonderful book. Um, and eye-opening because how, I mean, you see a tree and then you keep walking and you see another tree and you're like, oh, look, there's trees. But there are trees and then there are trees. And they and they have relationships with each other. I mean, some trees. And so street trees have a very different life and live usually a shorter life than trees in a forest. Where Is that, that plain th- trees? Will they all fall over one day and never? No, they'll get replanted. That's a whole other conversation. Oh, that's another I podcast. Know, I know because they've, they've got heritage value. But, I mean, I... Because oh. London plane trees in London are amazing. Plane trees can be amazing. They are not amazing in Melbourne. No, they're not very good for us, are they? No. Oh, God, we like some trees and we don't like other trees. Now I'm feeling species. But it's about where do trees live? Where, where is the right place for particular trees to live? That's the bigger picture, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to so be So plane okay. trees should be allowed panicking. to live, I think, in different environments. Not in, in hot, windy Melbourne. That's a very, yes, they're destructive for the insides of people's faces. Yes. Very bad for Noses. us. Noses. Um, we have come to the concluding parts of our podcast today about reading, not the other podcasts that we're talking about, just the reading part. So the final question will be about reading. And I wanted to know what you're currently reading. Well, I've just finished um, a book called Shaman by Kim Stanley Robinson. Mm-hmm. It, this does relate to my general anxiety about the planet and what is happening to it. Kim Stanley Robinson is a utopian science fiction writer. Oh, Wow. He's amazing, and and I have read, I had read all his books, but Shaman, and Shaman. So I went back and read one of his books. That is an older book yep. when I was on holiday recently. A completist, you're a completist. I, well, I'm not normally, but, but I if am you love with the him. Author. Yeah, right. and it's partly because his books give me hope, and I think we need that. It's, it's more, it's more genre, it's genre writing, but it's very political. Mm. And but Shaman is not set in the future; it's set in the past. It's set thirty thousand years ago. It's about a young oh, guy wow. who um, is, you know, living at the same time as the Neanderthal, as as they're kind of separating out between different Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, and the ice. It's still the ice age, and it's it. Look, it's not his best book, but I do like everything he's written. And he he was really he I think he really made it on the scene with a book called the Mars trilogy a series called the Mars trilogy, which was about people going to Mars and trying to make that inhabitable for humans. And but but he also wrote a book about he he writes about climate change a lot, and about artificial intelligence a lot. And he's someone who's very interested in 
positive answers to the way you can kind of, okay, so New York's underwater so people can live in towers and they can have vegetable gardens on the roof. It, it's a little bit more complex than that, but he kind of, and, and you he finds walls ways. and he's kind of, he's very interested in science, in technology and the way it can help us as well as, as cause, cause problems. So that's, that's good too, because I'm not, I certainly don't think the answer to any of, any issue is to become a Luddite and say, oh, none of this would be happening if there wasn't science or computers or whatever. Yeah. And what will you read next? I actually, you've caught me at a moment where I don't know. Oh, I, I love, this is the most exciting part. Because I don't, I will read a lot and then not read for months. If oh, I'm right. working on a book. Ah, right, so of course. I, I do read a lot when I'm working on a book, but it might be on scientific papers on mountain ash or when I was writing the Cyclone Tracy book books about cyclones. So or that's not necessarily reading for pleasure, that's reading for work and work. research. Yeah. But because I'm between projects, I'm just sort of reading books so I've, I've, that I'm liking. So I read um, recently also read um, The Forgotten Waltz by Anne Enright. Mm-hmm. That is, she's an amazing writer. Uh, I'm, uh, my wife is a really good reader. She reads a lot of books and so there's a pile and she passes them on to me so I've basically got this pile by my bed which she curating them she, specifically for you this one's for you this one's not for you no I mean I think she she might say this is for this is worth reading this one is not but she doesn't she kind of say that oh you other people will like this but you won't <laughs> In a pointed way. You know. Oh, no, not in, a, not in a negative way. Just as, you know, I know your reading tastes, I know your reading habits, I know what you'll enjoy. Yeah. No, she, I love that being done for me. I read for weird reasons. That is, I want to know stuff. So Kim Stanley oh, Robinson. Yes. yes. I, I'm not going to sit here and say his prose is amazing, but I love the ideas in it. Yeah. Virginia is really good with language um, and, and where language is really strong. So... So that means I've got a very good pile of books by my bed. Excellent. She can curate for me. If you could just let me yes. know, that would be great. Um, we have come to the conclusion of our podcast this afternoon. Any burning desire to say any final words? I did see that one of the questions, or you mentioned you might ask me if I read e-books, and the answer is yes. I just want to say I read oh, e-books. Oh, yes. And do you prefer the electronic format? Um, I do for research books because I can search. It makes it all the difference, doesn't it? And Searchable text. Also, when I'm travelling, I do use a lot of e I, so I like I love reading books, but um, I find storing books difficult. So I'm not an anti ebook person. That's really what I wanted to say. Welcome to the gang. Um, and what about audio books? Do you ever listen? I do when I'm driving. Um, yes, yeah, I do. But yeah. in fact, when I'm when I'm walking around as well, and I, I listen to um, oh the book about slavery that won the Pulitzer Freedom. About the Freedom Trail. The Underground Railroad? Yes, the Underground Railroad I listened to as an e-book. Colson Whitehead. Yes. And I did that specifically because I wanted to hear it read by an Mm African-American because I do think that sometimes we... And in the same way, I'd I'd like to read, um, listen to some Irish books. Mm. Um, But when when voice... It helps you with the voice when you're not kind of from, from, you know, from that... That culture, speaking of Irish writers, I've also just read Sally Rooney. Oh, yes. 
Well, that's, him if he wants. that's a different podcast. I have so many feelings about Sally Rooney. Yes. Anyway, um, I listened to The Sellout by Paul Beatty and I found switching from the book to the audiobook a far more enjoyable experience for I, similar reasons to what you've articulated. I have, though, and I'm going to let this writer remain nameless because he's a very interesting ideas person, but when I listened to an audiobook, I suddenly realised what a terrible writer he was. Because <laughs> I really interest he's a science writer and so he's not Australian. But but when I'm reading you can do that thing of skipping and yes. think, Oh well, okay, I've got the gist. Yeah. We're talking about this. Fine, I might skip a page. But when you're stuck in the car driving as I was a few months ago to Chicago with this and you're just like, oh, no, no, make it stop. This is so boring. So that's, it can backfire. That's when you pull over and uh, change, change the, the speed and make it go double time. And then it goes I've, a lot I've faster. I've only recently started doing that. Yeah. yeah, it actually makes the world of difference. I find yeah. that people are probably trained to slow all the way down when they're reading their audiobooks. So, yeah, you can speed them up a bit. I could not speed up Michelle Obama, just to be clear. I had to listen to that all 19 hours in real time and that was fine but there are some did she read it oh she did oh she did oh wow that is a staggering work of genius that she read it it was remarkable and a brilliant way to listen to that book will you do audiobooks of yours um I don't think this sounds like I'm asking for compliments I'm really not I don't think I have I think I have the right voice I, I have never been asked and, and I don't I don't like the sound of my voice, which probably isn't a good start. Oh, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you very much. I think but no, I don't think I, I think I'd rather an actor. I what, don't know. I, I don't really think, thought about I don't think anyone could read Melbourne that you wrote because that book is such a personal book and I would I connected so much to you and your writing and your life by reading it. And so I think I would only want you to read it aloud to me. Be- I have written some walking tours for the City of Literature, a walking tour, and it hasn't been released. I'm not entirely sure how it will be released, but it will be released. But they actually said that they wanted me to read it for a similar kind of reason. It's and, and that I get because yeah. you're sort of saying, hey, let's stand here and talk about this. So it's kind of like I'm chatting. And so that that I'm fine with because my personality is, is sort of relevant to the material. I suppose. So, yes. I think your personality is always relevant. I suppose that's true. Absolutely. Um, thank you kindly for joining me on your island, Sophie. Thank you for having me. I, can I, oh, you just thank me. I, I think if I was actually on a desert island. Yes. I'm not sure that, like, I actually if we just thought about that before. It's like, would I want these three books on a desert island? <laughs> it's too late to think about I know. that now. <laughs> but certainly I do love them a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you you are priceless. We need to do at least four more podcasts together. Um, thank you for listening. You can read this episode's show notes, including a list of all the books we discussed on our Goodreads page. You can locate that on our website at www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au. Just look for the Read page. I'd love to hear about your Desert Island books. You can tweet at Melbourne Library with the hashtag Desert Island Books and let me know the books that you can't live without on a desert island or off. You can download previous episodes in your favourite podcasting app or at SoundCloud or iTunes. Simply search Melbourne Library Service. Happy reading! Thank you.